Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Gray Zone. Happy uh, Saturday night. Welcome, Aaron Mate, Canadian award-winning journalist, to the stream. We are now live on Rockfin. And yeah, we missed you on Friday, but uh, it's another Shabbat edition of the Gray Zone. Good Shabbos. Uh, we got our Shabbos Goy, John Fetterman, on the ones and twos on the boards this time. Hakeem Jeffries couldn't be there tonight. So, um, yeah, we're there's a lot to talk about and some kind of, I mean, it's not, it would have been breaking news yesterday, but still, you know, fresh news, which is that Alexei Navalny, Russian opposition figure, has died an untimely death at age 47. In a Russian prison, um, we're, all, we're also going to talk about Gaza, of course, and we, we'll do some Syria as well. Uh, and there's been a major breakthrough in the Russian military operation in Ukraine. So we're going to try to cover everything as much as we can, uh, and maybe I'll get to see fight night. Got there's, a fight, there's a fight tonight? Yeah. Some UFC, but um, not that significant. Anyway, I'm just, you know, I try to, I, I try to uh, corner my reputation as far left and far right. So this stream <laughs> will be the far left. Then I'm going to watch uh, Volkanovsky to be far right. <laughs> yeah, that is my uh, favorite Wikipedia entry ever. For any, anyone who missed it, there was a one time when the Gray Zone's Wikipedia literally said the Gray Zone is a far left and far right news website and uh that was just perfect that was just yeah. perfect they went back to far left i guess okay they, yeah but yeah. you know maybe me like knowing who robert whitaker and paulo costa are will make me far right like, <laughs> anyway uh yeah so aaron initial thoughts on navalny i really haven't uh had much time to delve into the details yes of the death i've seen some of the theories going around and obviously washington is i mean biden has declared that putin and his thugs are responsible yeah and uh they're using this now as grounds to plead for more money for their proxy war which is being stalled by house republicans even though navalny actually himself was sort of a lukewarm uh um he was he he wasn't a supporter of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but he, he wasn't like a dogged critic because he is a Russian nationalist. And so, for example, when Russia took Crimea back in 2014, he supported that. And um, there are people in Ukraine who are very bitter towards him. Now, recently, of course, he's he's changed his tune, but um, Washington is so desperate to prolong the proxy war and to secure $61 billion in funding, which, by the way, does not address Ukraine's current needs. Half the money is for funding the war long into the future because Biden and his neocon allies, allies realize that if Trump takes office, uh, this whole project could be in jeopardy. Although you never know with Trump, actually. Maybe he'd seek even more money based on based on his record. But so they're trying to lock in this proxy war just in case, uh, just to uh, plan for all, all contingencies. And so now they're using Ukraine, uh, Navalny's death uh, to basically call, you know, call for this, and we'll play some clips of this. But listen, since we're going to criticize Navalny, 
I, I expect. Let me start with some actually some words of praise. He was very brave. He came back to Russia knowing he would get arrested, knowing he would be put in very harsh conditions. And that says to me that no matter what he was up to, he did have the courage of his convictions. He could have stayed away in exile. So many people do. He came back. And I don't know how he died. I don't believe the theories that the Russian government was involved in his death. What motive would they have to kill him? Uh, contrary to how he's portrayed in the West, he wasn't this like massively popular opposition figure. He had a following because uh, he took on certain aspects of Russian corruption uh, selectively. But uh, he wasn't this massive opposition leader. And uh, there are other opposition people inside Russia, including an anti-war candidate who's just been barred from running and a Marxist sociologist who's also very anti-war, who's just been given a four-year prison sentence, who, um, and they don't get the attention that Navalny does, not because he's that much more popular, although he is more popular, but not, I don't, I don't think that much more massively popular, but because they don't collaborate with the West. And they don't try to sell out their country, as I think Navalny did. Because Navalny, uh, for all the courage he had and uh, whatever he did positively against corruption in Russia, he collaborated with Western government intelligence operations. He collaborated with Bellingcat, which is we've exhaustively documented, is a NATO intelligence front. There's even video of him uh, meeting with a British official asking for money to basically launch a color revolution. That was like in the, the Kremlin put out that video secretly recorded so he he came up by being trained at this yale school which is just if you look at the people involved in it it's an obvious regime change training ground similar to the one they have at you know at different elite schools in this country including at stanford so whatever he did that was positive maurice greenberg it's named for him who was almost cia director founder of aig so yeah yeah um and then you have the, I mean, we can get into it. Then you have the really weird circumstances surrounding his alleged poisoning, um, where, again, similar with the Skripals, a really weird story where somehow he's poisoned with Novichok, one of the most deadly agents in the world, but he doesn't die in this weird plot where they, the Russians allegedly planted in his underwear. And again, he does so in collaboration with Bellingcat because after he gets taken to Germany and Russia lets him go, to get treatment rather than keeping in the in the country where they were supposedly trying to kill him. Then he collaborates with Bellingcat and then the CIA is immediately involved. And let me just show got this. That. You got this was the weirdest thing. Um, in December, 2020, the New York times reported this shortly after Navalny's arrival in Berlin, where again, he's taken cause he's just allegedly been poisoned and Russia lets him leave. Even though Russia allegedly just tried to kill him. Representatives from the CIA, and Britain's secret intelligence service provided members of the German government with details about the poisoning, including the identities of the Russian FSB service officers involved that directly implicated the Russian government. So this was an obvious clue that this whole thing with the Volney's poisoning was a Western op, or else why, why else would the CIA and the UK be involved in providing all the key incriminating details to Germany? So... Um, Whatever else is said about him, it's pretty clear he was a Western collaborator. What his actual status was, like what, you know, was he going to, you know, I don't know. But he certainly collaborated with the West. And ultimately, um, he was treated harshly because of that. Um, and, uh, and now he's gone.
Well, going back to that poisoning incident, which he, from which he survived, um, you know, he collapsed on a flight. He was treated by Russian doctors in a Siberian city. They said that he suffered from uh, leukemia or some blood condition, and that's why he collapsed. He no, he, he suffered from um, like hypoglycemia, some form of you know some blood condition where you can faint. The Russian doctors that examined him were basically superseded by the German doctors after he was evacuated, and then you know the whole operation apparently was overseen by MI6 and CIA once he got to Germany. Then he returns. This then he returns to Russia, right? Yeah. Well, first he goes to the uh, the the Black Forest of Germany, and he makes a film with Bellingcat. And just if you're working with Bellingcat, it's just you're making it so obvious what you're wait, up wait, wait. to. Just let's focus on. He went. So he winds up back in Russia after this. Going Eventually, yeah. After he makes a film with Bellingcat, and he right. uh, and he recovers, and there's a whole documentary made about him. Then he goes right. back to Russia, knowing he'll get arrested. And that's right. where again, you you have to admire his courage. And Bellingcat, well, wait a minute. And Bellingcat oversees this notorious phone call he made, or like famous phone call he makes, yes. where he interviews supposedly the guy who poisoned him, which yes. is itself yeah. shady, but we'll yeah. leave that to the side for a second. Yeah. yeah. This is like a, a CIA playbook, is going back. And this is what this this is what they did with Juan Guaido after he went to Colombia, for example. After his coup failed and he was taken back into Venezuela by a narco cartel, a Colombian cartel, and the whole the whole thing that and, and the Venezuelan government didn't fall for this. But what the U.S. was trying to do is push them to arrest the most visible opposition leader, which will then trigger massive sanctions or even an invasion. It's exactly what they wanted. So they let Guaido ride around. On his on the back of a motorcycle around the country as he his support eventually faded and now he's in Miami uh, living next door to like Netanyahu's son in some luxury condo he's done but the Russian government did not allow that to take place with Navalny who continued I mean and you can call it brave I mean yeah yeah uh, brave reckless whatever the question is to what extent he was being pushed or nudged by the CIA or MI6 hmm. to be in Russia to continue what were obvious provocations while his anti-corruption foundation, which is totally controlled by the West and totally based in the West now, was organizing. And I'm going to go into this in a second. And you know, if I have time next week, I'll do a more thorough article on it. Um, they were straight up organizing regime change operations, uh, doing things in Russia that the United States would never allow Russia to get away with inside the U.S. Um, so, oh, of course, not. yes. Uh, and and you know, do I condone him dying in a prison? No. Um, we should point out some of the double standards here before going deeper into some of these Western connections. Uh, when have we heard anyone who's howling for Navalny say a word? about Marwan Barghouti, hmm. the Palestinian political leader who spent over 20 years in prison because he was trying to liberate his people. Uh, he's a, a legitimate freedom fighter. 
And one of the reasons that the deal on the hostages and a ceasefire can't go through is Hamas is demanding, even though Barghouti comes from Fatah, demanding he be released so he can help lead a national unity government. The U.S. will never allow an, a, a united Palestinian polity. What about Gonzalo Lira? Gonzalo Lira was brave for staying in Ukraine. Uh, he, with his, he had a wife. He had a family there, and he stayed. And he was there, there, there's there's no dispute. He was yeah. killed in a Ukrainian gulag, which is which are the Ukrainian prisons are filled with political prisoners that whose names no one knows. Uh, I interviewed one of them, Ruslan Kotsaba, who is a Ukrainian pacifist. He wasn't even trying to topple the Ukrainian government. He actually comes from Western Ukraine. He uh, was actually the former a former uh, director of the uh, Stepan Bandera Museum, I think, in L in L Lviv. Uh, and then he realized that Maidan was a disaster and it was going to destroy his country, that the war in the east was uh, carrying out atrocities on people in Donbass. And he tur turned to a pacifist and he was jailed and held in solitary confinement for months and months and months. No one said a word about him. We don't hear about the Ukrainian political prisoners. So double standards are extreme here. The only reason they're howling about Navalny is because he was such a useful asset. And yeah, it's true that he would only poll at like 2% as a politician, but he was like the, he was the most important figure in getting people in the street against Putin. Uh, he showed that in 2009, 2010, as the elements in the CIA and MI6 tried to disrupt and prevent a reset with Russia. And he started the protests in middle-class and upper middle-class areas, cosmopolitan areas of Moscow and St. Petersburg. And so that's like the value. And, and you know, no one else could do that. Um, hmm. And one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that he espoused openly bigoted views, uh, comparing yeah. Muslim immigrants to, to cockroaches and rotten teeth. Yeah, but I never saw him renounce those views. Um, he was given opportunities to. He was interviewed by The Guardian and Der Spiegel in recent years. And he said, I have the same views now. Maybe I'm missing something where he did apologize but i never saw it and that's another thing that's overlooked in this effort yeah. to turn him into someone who um i don't think he was but you know i honestly I hadn't thought really about what you were saying laying out there in terms of why him coming back would could be a part of like a an op to stir up more unrest and fair enough um so whether that's courage on his part or just complete i mean i also have to leave open the possibility that's complete servitude to his handlers you know, that, that's a that, that's a fair point to raise. Yeah, I mean, um, there are many contradictions about Navalny when yeah. you point out his nationalist past where there's a this notorious video where he compares Muslims to cockroaches. He was a, calling for a gun rights, um, that you have to have guns to defend against this migrant scourge. He appeared at, uh, you could call it nationalist rallies. There were neo-Nazis who were part of these rallies. They waved the Russian imperial black and yellow flag there. And that, that was part of, I think, his opportunism that he was mm. trying to corner the nationalist, uh, the nationalist movement that opposed Putin. He also supported uh, the annexation of Crimea because that was a nationalist thing. But, you know, the people who run his foundation, they're just straight up. They're just straight up traitors from the Russian point of view. Uh, they don't they they support Ukraine destroying Russia. They support sanctioning Russia, destroying Russia's economy. Their entire yeah. staff is outside of Russia. Uh, Navalny was more of an authentically 
Russian figure. And that's why you have these contradictions between the foundation and his backers and himself. Mm. Um, but of course, yeah, the, we, as we've seen with Azov, as we've seen with Al Qaeda in Syria, the West doesn't care. They'll make anyone into Martin Luther King if they're a useful asset. And people, will, dupes will play along. I mean, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but this is one of the most pathetic things I've seen from Cornell West uh, and why I don't take his presidential campaign that seriously. Uh, my prayers are with the precious family of the courageous Russian political prisoner, Navalny, just as I play, pray for my dear brothers, Mumia Abu Jamal, Imam Jamil Abdullah Alamin, which is uh, the Muslim name of H. Rap Brown, who is uh, who's convicted under very dubious circumstances of a crime after the FBI hounded him for his life. Leonard Peltier, who was hounded by the FBI as a member of the American Indian Movement. And then Nargis Mohammadi, who is like, uh, you know, this is an Iranian figure who's a lot more like Navalny because the West backs her. Cornell West's wife is Iranian and is a supporter of the kind of color revolution in Iran from, from what I understand. So I don't even know who wrote this post, but it's not a good look to compare people who fought uh, for black liberation in the U.S., with someone who espoused openly racist views in Russia and marched with neo-Nazis. I don't know what he was thinking. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, tons of liberals, what, what's it? John Cusack said, if we just had one Navalny in the U S everything would be different. You know, it's funny. John, John told me to go speak to Navalny's people to get a sense of who he was. And I said, last time I spoke to one of Navalny's people, he called me uh, a Russian asset. That was Navalny's chief of staff said I was on Putin's payroll, and then he blocked oh, yeah, me. Yeah, he always says that about me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's my experience with Navalny Circle. Um, this, and then, it, of course, and then of course, Julian Assange. Guy, was it Leonid, Vol Leonid Volkov? Uh, this guy? Yeah, yes, it was. Yes, it was. Yeah, so he's from the, yeah, like Navalny, he was a Maurice R. Greenberg World Fellows Program trainee, and this is Maurice Greenberg, the founder of AIG, was very close to the CIA. They have this program at Yale where they train CIA assets, basically. Um, Carlos Vecchio, the fake ambassador for Juan Guaido's bogus government of Venezuela in Washington, he was trained by this same network. So, you know, badge of honor. Um, but yeah, those are his people. They're not exactly, I mean, they're basically our people. It's basically like talking to uh, Langley with a Russian accent. <laughs> Yeah. And then, of course, Julian Assange. I mean, this week is the final extradition hearing coming up. And uh, you compare the outpouring of outrage from U.S. neocons to either their complete silence or they're cheering for the persecution of Julian Assange, who, you know, comparatively over the last decade was treated far worse by the West than Navalny was treated by Russia. Um, and, uh, that yeah um but look let's let's listen to anthony blanken reacting to navalny's death fear of one man only underscores the weakness and rot at the heart of the system that putin has built russia's responsible for this we'll be talking to many other countries concerned about Alexei Navalny, uh, especially if these reports bear out to be true. So fear of one man exposes the rot in the system. So 
if Navalny's treatment exposes the rot in the Russian system, what is the treatment of Assange exposed about the U.S. system? Yeah, Assange over the time has been treated far worse. Um, I mean, Blinken, Blinken exposes the rot of the U.S. system because he's presiding over genocide. I, I mean, it's just amazing that he has the gall to even try to project moral force about a supposed political prisoner at this point. Like, it's over. Yeah. There might have been a time when, you know, the word of a U.S. Secretary of State could get someone out of a prison in Iran or somewhere in Russia. No one takes the rules-based order seriously at this point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, 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 that's, but that is the message that the U.S. is trying to send, uh, as along with the, the, the I mean, it, it comes at a weird time. We should point out the timing. The Russian presidential elections coming up. The Putin's standing for re-election in March. Okay. This is not something that Putin would want to have had happen. It's not, I'm not saying that, you know, everything is under his control. It's a fact that there are elements in the FSB and other security factions in Russia that Putin, that might even be, uh, you know, hostile to Putin. But this is not something he wanted. I doubt he wanted this to ha happen. Um, it also comes after his interview with Tucker in which he was clearly sending the message that he wanted negotiations, a negotiated settlement on Ukraine. He wanted this to come to an end. And it comes as Russia defeats Ukrainian forces in Avdivka, the last toehold that the Ukrainian army had anywhere close to Donetsk. Uh, massive crushing defeat. So it distracts from that. So it just, it's not really working in Russia's favor here. And the death was, uh, it, it was announced on the day, I believe, of the opening of the Munich Security Conference, which is the preeminent neocon conference held every year. Um, that And, you know, Navalny's wife was speaking there. I mean, the timing is crazy. Yeah, um, and yeah they caught her out to kind of address it. Oh yeah, they did, and and they. I mean, basically, the 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 theme of the meeting now is like Navalny was killed by Putin. Therefore, we have to arm Ukraine. That's the drumbeat. That's the message, and everyone is 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 disseminating that. And it's the one that Americans are all supposed to now get on board with. And Zelensky is, of course, it was at this conference uh, in 2022 when Zelensky basically said that Ukraine should get nuclear weapons. And that he would not negotiate with the Donbass leaders. That was right before Russia invaded. And now he's back saying things like this. Clearly demonstrates where Putin's so-called career should end. He has only two options ahead. To be in the dog in The Hague. Or to be killed by one of his accomplices who are now killing for him well the second part really sounds like projection yeah big time i mean putin hasn't been threatened with death by um high level militia leaders in russia unlike zelensky who's been threatened with regime change and murder by uh people like the leader of, of right sector who you know before russia invaded said that we'll we'll hang zelensky from a tree if he makes a deal with russia 
So I definitely agree with you. That is definitely projection. Yeah. I mean, okay, Zelensky's not going to wind up in The Hague because The Hague is, I mean, Bellingcat has an office there. The ICC <laughs> prosecutor is a complete tool. Oh, yeah. The Israeli leadership is not in The Hague. Nobody's going to be uh, no. within the Western fold. Zelensky, he's going he's gonna to go abroad. That's probably what's going to happen here after this whole thing comes crashing down. Um, but in any case, like you can see the extremism, the delusions that are on display, and this Navalny death has consolidated the delusional mind state that they can continue to wage this war and call for regime change and the killing of Putin as Avdivka is taken. Yeah. I mean, just look at some of these calls. So, so this is Senator Mark Kelly. The best way to punish Putin for Navalny's death is to give Ukraine the weapons and ammunition they need to continue decimating his army. Continue? Continue, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's like they, they can't get their talking points straight because they say both that Ukraine's in dire straits. That's what Biden said recently. They're going to lose unless we arm them. They're also saying that Ukraine is destroying Russia. Russia's already lost. So they, they can't even get their talking points straight. Um, Senator, Senator Gary Pierce, it's time for the House to follow the Senate's lead, stand up to Putin, send our aid to our allies in Ukraine. Uh, this is Congressmember Ron Bayer. The House must pass Ukraine. So you see what they're doing here. They're just using the death of this one man in a prison to try to sell $61 billion more for this proxy war. Yeah, more burned tanks. I mean, let's this this is a look at Avdivka. Like, this is a perfect, I think, short video to understand how disastrous. I mean, it's a perfect microcosm for the entire proxy war. <laughs> They're Sig Heiling. Those are, I think, those are German Leopard tanks in front of them. Nice U.S. flag. This is now. Nice German tank there. I mean, there are so many videos like this coming out of Avdivka. So much Ukrainian equipment, which is NATO equipment, has been lost there. So many soldiers have been lost there. And they don't really have an army after this. And they don't have a firing point onto Donbass, which they were using as leverage against that. That was part of their leverage was we're just going to keep attacking civilian settlements, preventing civilians from returning home on the, on the ethnic Russian side until you negotiate on our terms. They don't have that anymore. Um, this is the biggest Russian victory since Bakhmut, which uh, was lost by the new chief of staff, Sirsky, who they call the butcher within the Ukrainian military. So let's send them more weapons. We're not sending them weapons. We're sending, we're sending money to Senator Mark Kelly's donors. Our money is being laundered through Ukraine, burned by Russia, and then it goes back to these sen to these senators campaigns and it goes into the bank accounts of our upper class arms industry executives and all their workers so you know this is like job creation 
in a financialized economy that actually has no product, like no productive base. That's what's going on. Yeah. And all this is being waged in the name of defending democracy. But all these people are showing how much they hate democracy because, first of all, the Republican um, leadership in the House, Mike Johnson, who is stalling this this aid, I mean, whatever his motives are, it's in line with the majority of Republican voters. Vast majority of Republican voters don't want more money for Ukraine. So they're actually following the will of their voters, or at least they're in line with what their voters want. And then, look, this is a new poll from Quincy. Roughly 70% of Americans want the Biden administration to push Ukraine toward a negotiated peace with Russia as soon as possible. So all these people in Congress freaking out about the House not proceeding with $61 billion uh, to defend democracy in Ukraine, they're trying to override democracy at home to the point where, again, they're trying to lock in all this money uh, in Ukraine war funding that will long, long outlast uh, this presidency so that the next president, if it's Trump, is basically bound to continue this war, whether he likes it or not. Yeah. Uh, and there's been, there have been attempts to lock Trump in to this war and, and essentially to NATO. That's why there's this freak out over Trump's comments about NATO. Yeah. I don't think he can do anything there. Yeah. Um, I wanted to play this clip. This is the uh, editor of The Economist. Her name is Zanny Minton Beddoes. And oh, you know, she appeared on Jon Stewart's Return to the Daily Show. And yeah. listen to what she said. To be clear, aiding Ukraine, giving the money to Ukraine, is the cheapest possible way for the U.S. to enhance its security. It's just, it's absolutely, the fighting is being done by the Ukrainians. They're the people who are being killed. The U.S. and, and Europe are supplying them weapons. And in doing so, we are pushing back against Putin. I mean, it, I've been to Kiev twice and, and lived there 30 years ago. And you can't go there and not think this is a European country that is looking westward. And for the U.S. to abandon it now, if it does, it's almost jaw-dropping. Her real name, by the way, is Susan Jean Elizabeth Minton Beddoes. <laughs> she, <laughs> she just goes by Zanny for short. Zanny, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's how the wasps do it. Um, we should ask Jeffrey Sachs about her because uh, she actually used to work for him. Before. No way. Huh. Yeah, huh. When he was a uh, blue pill, Jeffrey Sachs. But, you know, so look, I mean, this is now old hat for a, a self-described supporter of Ukraine to just openly brag about how Ukrainians are dying on our behalf and how, how cheap that is. But, you know, putting that as, you know, that's like par for the course. Now we've seen these clips and people say this a million times, but, then she says this is the best way to protect our security. How? How is this in any how is this in the interest of anyone's security? How is anyone's security enhanced by having this proxy war? It's just taken as like uh as like a truth, as like as true as the sun or the sky being blue. And John Stewart just sits there like a good liberal, just nods, saying yes. Like no one starts the question, how is it in our security to have this proxy war? And do we have the right to be sacrificing all these Ukrainians and calling their lives cheap um you can't even question that it's like you know. a, it's, it's an old talking point that should have been discredited uh after the counteroffensive last year failed yeah it should have been discredited the thing is these bloodless reptilian shapeshifters don't actually care about ukrainians or ukrainian lives and so they just keep saying it 
They're just like shovel more into the slaughterhouse, kill more. We don't e they don't even know anyone who's been to war. So uh, these are also the people who populate the media elite. Uh, Zenny Minton Beddoes is married to Sebastian Malaby, who is a former top Washington Post editor, who is the son of a major British diplomat who was in Germany. And she helped pillage the Polish economy after the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Soviet Union. I mean, these people are still infesting our media and pumping out these talking points while the Ukrainian military is sending people with Down syndrome to the front lines because so many men have been killed and they have no bodies left. It's just sick. It's sick. And by the way, that's why John Stewart is allowed back on TV. Like he'll say, oh, we need a ceasefire in Palestine. I'm sick of seeing people who support Palestine praise John Stewart. Like you're not going to liberate Palestine by giving a softball interview to Zanny Minton Beddoes, who supports the entire imperial system, which has doomed Palestine to being under the rubric of American control and doomed the entire Arab world to being a replica of Jordan, which can't do anything for the majority of its citizens who are Palestinian, except state how many have been killed in Gaza in a press conference with Biden. Any Arab leader with any dignity would have taken Biden in handcuffs and hauled him off to be put on trial in Tehran. Instead, what we got was King Abdullah complaining about how many people, how many children have been killed with Biden sitting right beside him. Biden standing, like staring off into the distance. This yep. dementia-addled sociopath. And Abdullah's left pleading for a ceasefire. So that's the system that Zanny Minton Beddoes represents globally. And Jon Stewart is going to campaign for Biden's reelection when the chips are down. I guarantee it. So you can't just call, you can't call for a ceasefire and support the system that has made this genocide possible. And so stop praising Jon Stewart. Stop giving him the benefit of the doubt. He's not on, he's not back on TV for any good reason. And you can't, support the Ukraine proxy war, put a Ukrainian flag in your Twitter bio and a Palestinian flag. That's just contradictory. And it shows that like you're incoherent. You're just a milquetoast liberal. That's like Peter Beinart liberalism. And it's, it's, there's a reason those people have credentials and have, uh, you know, some mainstream appeal and get to maybe go on Fareed Zakaria for 30 seconds to complain about what's happening. Um, yeah. I mean, look, it's like, you know, the sponsors of the Gaza genocide are making it pretty obvious. They are packaging the money for Ukraine with the package for the genocide. Yeah. You can't get any more explicit than that. Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, Biden, they all say, you know, these are like the same fights and that's why you have to pass them together. They can't even pass, they don't want to pass them separately because this is their project, uh, enforcing hegemony by genocide in Gazans and fueling this proxy war in Ukraine. Uh, and in both cases, being on the side of these ultra-nationalist supremacists who are fundamentally opposed to the equality of another major group that shares the same land. In the case of Ukraine, the Ukrainian nationalists, they don't see ethnic Russians as equal. They don't even see them as Ukrainians, and they want to wipe them out, basically. Uh, and, and I mean, Israel, Israel in an even more fanatic version of that, 
obviously. So that's whose side the U.S. is on. And there's no contradiction, therefore, between the Biden's Ukraine policy and its, its Gaza policy. They're exactly the same. And amazingly, some progressives still want to pretend otherwise. And um, the progressives who joined with Biden to fund this proxy war to begin with, because remember, they've already allocated more than $100 billion. Uh, they put Biden in a position where now he could just turn around and add the Gaza genocide to his foreign policy achievement, to, to, to his foreign policy goals. So they put him in this position to begin with. And now, and we just saw, he was so willing to, he was so desperate to get the money that he was willing to cave on all these immigration issues, all the things that Democrats claimed to care about when they were running against Trump. All of a sudden, that was completely thrown out. Uh, and the only reason that that didn't go through is because the House Republicans uh, didn't want to fund the Ukraine uh, war and also didn't see the immigration measures as being extreme enough for them. But I um, think they want to, I mean, side point, but I think they want to weaponize the crisis at the border and the migration crisis that's sweeping the country. And it is a real crisis right. that I've never seen before, uh, after, after having covered immigration. Um, and I've seen it outside U.S. borders, things I never thought I would see before. It's just it's a real crisis relating to the collapse of the global economy and the destabilization of large parts of the globe. And the Republicans want to weaponize it until Trump is elected. So when the Democrats gave them what they wanted, the Democrats caved to almost every demand. It was sort of like uh, Bill Clinton giving the Newt Gingrich House Republicans almost everything they wanted except uh, you know, giving up on Medicare and then declaring victory. I saved Medicare and it's triangulation. I'm brilliant. The Democrats did the same thing. And the Republicans said, well, we, we can't do it because actually we didn't actually want to solve this crisis. So um, that's a sort of a separate issue. But yeah, you have Ukraine and Israel packaged together for a good reason. It's super important to, to make that point. And we should also consider Gaza and Donbass in the same light. These are stateless entities where people self-organized armed resistance against Nazis, against the Nazis of our time. They were totally abandoned by the entire world. The people of Donbass felt abandoned by Russia and Putin after 2014. They were yes, like, they did. what about us? You you took you Crimea and yep. into your control. We want you to protect us from these all-out Nazis who are also selling off their state assets, their land, and their people to Western vulture capitalists. We don't want to be a part of that. And what they did was genuinely inspiring uh, in organizing their own basically self-protection committees. What the Donbass, Don the Donetsk and Lugansk and Gaza have done with being almost totally abandoned by the world and sanctioned and besieged, they've blown a huge hole in Western hegemony. A massive yeah. hole. Uh, and so I think they need to be seen in the same light. Uh, people who are watching this, you know, who have, who are part of the Palestine solidarity movement, who followed the Palestine issue more closely over the years, who don't know as much about Russia, Ukraine, something we've been writing about, doing journalism about since 2014. Uh, it's important to sharpen your perspective and start to see the similarities in how the West approaches these two areas. And then you also have Taiwan, which is another Western point of pressure against another designated enemy. Uh, and Taiwan is kind of like Israel East. 
uh, in many ways. And, you know, Zelensky has put forward the big Israel model for Ukraine. Go to, go to our YouTube channel, check out um, my speech to the Ron Paul Institute about big Israel. Ukraine is a big Israel. Um, it's all kind of one project. I think where, where Israel kind of goes off the rails is that it contradicts U.S. hegemony in many ways by attempting to drag the U.S. into conflicts that just simply don't benefit it, like war with Iran. Uh, we can see Israel harming U.S. empire by endangering U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. We obviously oppose the U.S. presence in Iraq and Syria. They're there to steal oil. They're there to actually create a tripwire for war with Iran. You might actually argue that the whole reason they're there, I think it's fair to argue, is to provide Israel uh, with deterrence and strategic depth. The U.S. shouldn't be there at all. Netanyahu played a huge role in pushing the U.S. to invade Iraq. Uh, the Clean Break document was written by Netanyahu's advisors, Doug Fife, Richard Pearl, these characters in Washington in 96, advising the invasion of Iraq, then Syria as a stepping stone to Iran. So in many ways... Uh, there are contradictions between U.S. national security or U.S. interests and what Israel wants, but Israel is still used as this kind of um, uh, what would you, uh, uh, land-based aircraft carrier. Yeah. You know, I, I want to make one point about when you're talking about the Donbass, proxy warriors would say in response to that, what are you talking about? This was not this indigenous uh, population rising up. This was a Russian invasion from the start. But if you look at when Russia got involved, really got involved uh, in the Donbass, they sent forces in, you know, like serious forces in August 2014. Before that, there were some maybe, you know, some scattered officers, but the real Russian involvement was August 2014, which is four months after the war breaks out. Because in April, mid-April, right after uh, John Brennan visits Ukraine, right after that, Ukraine launches this assault on the Donbass, and Russia only gets involved when its allies in the Eastern Donbass are about to be overrun. And then Russia immediately fights to bring both to both sides to the negotiating table, and they get, in September, the first Minsk Accords, which immediately fail. But Russia's aim from the start, and this is covered in a, in a recent book called Ukraine's Unnamed War, which is by two Western scholars of Ukraine, um, not fans of Putin at all. They make that very clear. That basically Russia's involvement in the Donbass only began after its allies were, you know, in serious threat and there was about to be a major crisis. And immediately Russia's aim was to compel negotiations, which led to the Minsk and Minsk II Accords, which is we've talked about a lot. Ukrainian ultranationalists refused to accept because it would recognize the cultural rights and just the presence in Ukraine of ethnic Russians, which they refused to implement. And they got backed up in that by neocons in the U.S. and that helped bring us to where we are today. Yeah, I mean, the, the Minsk was predicated on providing autonomy on some level to Donetsk and Lugansk in the same way that Camp David between Egypt and Israel was predicated on autonomy for Palestinians, particularly in the West Bank. And Menachem Begin was never going to do that. Actually, there's a CIA memo that got declassified of Edmund Fuller, who was the CIA officer and uh, for Egypt, I think, at the time, stating like, there's no way that Israel's ever going to implement Camp David. And yet it, it stands today. Israel's violated all every aspect of it, except with 
respect to Egypt. And now they're about to violate core aspects of it by invading, essentially invading Egypt, south of Gaza, along the Philadelphia corridor. Um, so all of these treaties that provided the, I mean, Minsk was supposed to, I, I mean, Minsk was never going to succeed. Camp David, um, Sadat was a, a, a complete idiot for signing it and was assassinated as a result. And Oslo, well, we saw what happened to Arafat. We see the results of that. Oslo and Minsk were this, in, the same in the sense that they were basically authored and, and signed by the more powerful entity backed by the West in order to buy them time for Israel to buy them time to put more settlements and facts on the ground to prevent a Palestinian state for Ukraine to buy them more time to build up their military for a giant war with Russia, which they knew they were provoking as Angela Merkel, former German chancellor admitted. So negoti negotiation and diplomacy from the point of view of the Western rules-based order mm. is just simply a machination. It's a form of manipulation. Yes. Uh, listen, on this front, and we don't want to get detoured too much in Camp David because it's 1979 we're talking about, but here's a U.S. official who was involved in Camp David backing up your point. This is Harold H. Saunders, who was heavily involved in brokering Camp David under Jimmy Carter. He said, although the, he said, although the Camp David Accords gave lip service to Palestinian interests, they actually freed the Likud government in Israel to consolidate its hold on the West Bank and Gaza. Evidence shows a major Israeli push to enlarge the program of settlements in the West Bank. Just went away. Uh, uh, we just lost it. Anyway, I'll keep reading it. Um, evidence shows a major Israeli push to enlarge the program of settlements in the West Bank from the period immediately after Camp David. In the same vein, the Egyptian-Israeli peace freed Israel to invade Lebanon in 1982 to destroy or drive out the PLO. That's just a classic example of like a so-called peace deal being used to perpetuate supremacy, occupation. Uh, and that's what Israel's done from the start. And that's how the U.S. views peace agreements overall, um, as you talked about with the Minsk Accords too. And, and everybody involved, uh, Angela Merkel, Francois Hollande, Poroshenko, they've all admitted these peace accords were basically a fig leaf to perpetuate more war. And I mean, let, let's stay on Camp David for a second. It is significant in a contemporary sense. Uh, it's highly significant. And might, this might be a good transition to talk about Gaza. Um, Camp David's been great for Israel. I mean, they neutralized the most powerful Arab state, transferred the power of the Arab world into the monarchies of the Gulf who are subservient to the West, were created by British colonialism. Uh, who Who's the key negotiator now in this Qatar, which is the one that at least feigns and some sort of adversarial stance, uses the Muslim Brotherhood as a, a soft power mechanism. But basically, Egypt has been neutered. One third of the country is controlled. The, uh, the country's economy is controlled by the military, which makes any civil society movement or any democracy impossible. We saw that with the coup that of the June 30th coup that destroyed the Muslim Brotherhood, the first elected government. And this was the time in Gaza 
when which people talk about as the greatest time since the siege began it was maybe one of the only respites they had from the siege is when egypt had a brief period of democracy the tunnels were more open more aid was getting in people were free to leave more often through rafa and that was all closed and it's all because of camp david and it's it really helps to explain how extreme and insane israel has become that they are putting this deal in peril and ta and ta um, taunting and provoking someone like Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who is so controlled by the West, was brought in by the West through this bloody coup. Egypt is threatening to suspend Camp David over the Rafah incursion because Israel is getting closer and closer to violating the demilitarized zone between itself and Egypt. Egypt has heavily fortified its border with Gaza. They've brought scores of tanks and armored personnel carriers to the border with Gaza. And they are concerned about hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees being pushed into the Sinai. Um, people should understand the Egyptian like upper middle class and upper class is very hostile to Palestinians as like the Lebanese upper class has been. So this could politically destabilize the government in Cairo. Um, Egypt is making plans already, though, for 60,000 Palestinians to come in. The threat to suspend the Camp David Accords came on Sunday after Netanyahu said sending troops into Rafah was necessary to, quote, win the four-month war against Hamas. So we are seeing the, the entire, quote-unquote, rules-based order from post-Soviet Europe to the Middle East be completely upended uh, by these two disastrous wars, which Biden has his fingerprints all over. We were told, oh, Trump was going to destroy the rules-based order. Well, it's happened under Biden. I don't know if Biden knew it happened or knew he was even there for it, but this is happening. Well, I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, these reports that Egypt is building this walled enclosure near Rafa with thousands of tents and whether does that signal that Israel's collaborate that Egypt is collaborating with Israel in its plans to expel people from Rafa? Definitely. Think, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh but they're they're only collaborating to a certain extent. Uh, I think mm. they've agreed to a figure of 60,000. Uh but that's, you know, if the floodgates open, the number is going to be much much higher. It will be disastrous for Egypt internally. And this is obviously Israel's final solution. Um, and the uh, Egyptian foreign minister, uh, Semeh Shukri, has openly recognized this and said, you are seeking to ethnically cleanse Gaza. We're not going to allow this. And we, that's why he's threatening the end of Camp David or suspension of Camp David. Um, <laughs> but what, what Egypt has been proposing is instead of Israel bringing its forces into the Philadelphia corridor, which is effectively the Egyptian, almost the Egyptian side of Rafa, that they instead place high-tech walls and cameras there, and you know that will be the solution. So Egypt is still proposing to continue the siege of Gaza. Uh, I mean, it, they remain a like a collaborator nation with Israel and the US. It's just that Israel's gone so far here 
that they are threatening to destabilize a country where you just have a very high poverty rate. The population rate is very high. It's hard for the government to take care of everyone. And all of a sudden you have a refugee crisis there. Uh, and Europe's not going to want to take them in. So, uh, I mean, this if Netanyahu continues this for the rest of the year, we will see that though. And it's so obvious that this is the final solution for Israel. Look at how they started this assault. Um, and I'll show you some, we'll, we'll look at some, some, some footage of, uh, you know, what's happening in Gaza and, you know, look at how they started it. They started it in the North. It started in the North. They destroyed everything in the North. They cut off the center um, around Dar al-Bala and the Magazi camp. They created this kind of corridor where no one could pass in order to, after they forced as many people out of the north as they could, they continued to kill anyone who comes out of their homes in the north. And then they moved to Khan Yunus in the southeast and now they're attacking Nasser Hospital, as they did Shifa Hospital in Gaza City, because Nasser Hospital, this is the base where people can come and, uh, you know, try to be internally displaced without leaving Han Yunus, which is where they're from, and to receive treatment. And by destroying this hospital, where they have snipers outside, they've destroyed an entire wall outside the hospital and creating chaos, then they push them further south to Rafah. And then they're going to go into Rafah and push them into Egypt, ethnic cleansing. This was the plan the Ministry of Intelligence in Israel published, yeah. then claimed, oh, was irrelevant. But this is, it, it's a straight up genocidal plan. And, a, and it goes hand in hand with the humanitarian crisis that Israel is fueling, where its finance minister and other ministers are threatening to quit the government if U.S. flour is allowed into uh, is allowed into Gaza. This is what it looks like. It looks like a concept. This is on the border of, this is Rafa on the border with Egypt. And this is Israel's Zyklon B, starvation, destruction of hospitals, destruction of schools, destruction of center of life. Those are their mobile extermination centers in this all-out genocide that's being live streamed right before our eyes. And, so and remember, remember, around the same time as that leaked Israeli uh, uh, ministry plan for expulsion came out the biden administration got caught asking congress for money to cover the got excuse me to cover the costs of displaced people which says to me that the biden administration was in on israel's expulsion plans from the start there, were, there was some item in like a budget request that talked about like dealing with the contingency of a massive amount of refugees um so and that's why you know even now as biden says you know, you can't go into Rafa without a credible plan for uh, protecting the civilians. They're already saying, never mind that. There was a report in Politico this week saying that if Israel goes into Rafa and harms civilians, there won't be any consequences. And there's this too. This just came out from the Wall Street Journal that um, as Israel is planning to go into Rafa, the um, 
The U.S. is rushing weapons. U.S. plans to send weapons to Israel amid Biden push for a ceasefire deal. How does that make sense? <laughs> Biden's pushing for a ceasefire while rushing weapons to Israel. Um, do they think about how this looks when they write these headlines? Um, and this is from the article. The U.S. has provided roughly 21,000 precision-guided munitions since the start of the war. Israel has used roughly half of those. So around more than 10,000 munitions dropped on Gaza in four months, which is just unfathomable. According to a U.S. intelligence assessment, the remaining weapons are enough for Israel to sustain 19 more weeks of fighting in Gaza, but that would shrink to days if Israel launched a second front against Hezbollah, which is based in Lebanon, according to uh, a person familiar with this. The transfer is indicative of a broader effort by the Biden administration to speed the flow of weapons to Israel, U.S. officials say. But the fact that Israel only has 19 weeks worth left of bombs, less if there's a second front, it shows how much leverage Biden has over Israel. Yeah. And he could use it if he wanted to. But instead, what's he doing? He's rushing weapons from genocide. By the way, 19 weeks is a long time considering what they're doing with these weapons. I mean, they've blown everything up. Yeah. This is a video from UNRWA, the UN agency for to take care of Palestinian refugees. And this is the north. This is the Shati camp, the beach camp, which was destroyed by Israel early on. This is around Gaza City. And look at this. This is the beach health center. Ugh. So... That's UNRWA's logo on a major health center in the Shati camp. And it sums it all up perfectly. It sums up the U.S. and Israel's total contempt for the actual international community. They fired a tank shell in the middle of the U.N. logo. And the United States, along with its tools in Canada and elsewhere, has defunded UNRWA over fake allegations cooked up by Israel's intelligence, which basically says two staffers at UNRWA participated in October 7th out of like 11,000 people. No. Uh, so, you know, is the U.S. is fueling the famine of Gaza with this. I mean, and look at the uh, center for, uh, UNRWA Center for the Blind was bombed by Israel. UNRWA schools across Gaza Strip blown up. The U.S. gave them the weapons to do this. All of that, all That's of that was destroyed. Unbelievable. Thank you, United States. And now you're cutting off flour. Um, Max, let me ask you a question. Um, so Rafa is supposedly where people could go to be safe, right? They were pushed out of the north into Rafa. Now basically, uh, now Rafa is not safe. Israel's attacking it and, pl and planning this ground assault. But so do you think that was part of the plan? Basically push all these people out, get them into one place, even one more concentrated place in the south, and then push them out again. So when Israel forced all these people to go to Rafa, do you think they knew then that they'd eventually be attacking Rafa too? Well, remember those, um, those flyers that were dropped on Gaza? I'm trying to find them now. Early on in uh, like mid, late October. I can't find it. We addressed it in other streams. Basically, they just showed a map, a crude map of Gaza with really bad Arabic writing, and it just had arrows pointing people down towards Rafa from the north. 
And it was obvious to me at the time that the goal is push them to the border of Egypt, create so much pressure, then force Egypt to let them in. Everybody can see that. The United States, Blinken knows that's the plan. But they won't they won't stop shipping the weapons, which is the only way to stop it. What what is Biden called for a humanitarian pause or something? I mean, the whole deal breaker here, one of the main deal breakers is Hamas is calling for a permanent ceasefire. And the US and Israel won't give it to him. Netanyahu has his own reasons, but Yeah, Blinken called that a non-starter. Yeah. I mean, and how dare you? You're not involved in the negotiation. You're supposed to be a diplomat. You're supposed yeah. to be brokering it. How dare you call any condition put forward by either party a non-starter unless you're speaking on behalf of one of them? He's clearly speaking on behalf of Israel. Let's look at what Biden just said. He called for a temporary ceasefire, which means pausing briefly the genocide. Well, first of all, I've had extensive conversations with the prime minister of Israel over the last several days, almost an hour each. And... Uh, I've made the case, and I feel very strongly about it, that there has to be a, uh, a temporary ceasefire to get the prisoners out, to get the hostages out. And that is underway. I'm still hopeful that that can be done. And in the meantime, uh, I don't anticipate, I'm hoping that, uh, you, that the uh, Israelis will not make any massive land invasion in the meantime. Um, so it's my expectation that's not going to happen. There has to be a ceasefire temporarily to get those hostages. By the way. So it's all temporary. Just he wants to pause the genocide. He thinking that Hamas would somehow go for that. He lives in a complete delusional world. And it makes sense because he's a supremacist. He he must not think he he obviously has no regard for what Hamas is trying to do here, which is basically uh, end the war permanently and get its prisoners released. He just has such contempt for that he can't fathom the possibility of, of, of negotiating with them. So he thinks he can maybe fool them by calling for a temporary ceasefire, and that would be enough to get them to release all their hostages, all their captives. Yeah, it's not going to happen because they, they, I mean, first of all, it's just physically not going to happen that you're going to be that Hamas is going to or and all the factions in Gaza will give up the hostages the captives including what are effectively prisoners of war all of the soldiers they capture captured on October 7th they're going to give them up and then Israel is going to be able to have all the leverage it needs to attack Gaza without holding back at all and they're that's when they can essentially decimate the entire place go go for the high value targets that they claim they haven't gotten yet like uh Yahya Senwar the prime minister what idiot would give up the only bargaining chip they have and not get a permanent ceasefire what what is Biden thinking and Netanyahu is not going to agree to any ceasefire on any long term because the Israeli military will lose momentum and if he agrees to a permanent ceasefire, he's toast. He's completely toast. Everyone in the in Israel is ready. Uh, not everyone, but a large sector of the Israeli public, larger, much larger than like in early November, for example, is ready to blame him 
for October 7th and hold him responsible. There are huge protests happening now in Israeli cities demanding a ceasefire. They're furious at Netanyahu because he sent uh, to uh, Cairo, he ref he he sent uh, delegate uh, members of his government without asking the war cabinet, and he's basically acting completely on his own unilaterally without consulting those involved in charge of the war, which means he's acting for his own self-interest, and they realize that he's not going to bring the hostages back. And Israel engaged in this con, which you know everyone in the West felt like all the pro-Israel forces in the West propagated as well in, in order to, number one, justify the coming bloodbath in Rafah and to try to convince maybe not necessarily the Israeli public, although a part of it is falling for this, especially the nationalist camp, all the religious nationalist camp, but also the West and Biden himself, that they can rescue the hostages as long as they are able to go into Rafah. And it was this really questionable rescue operation of these two men, uh, Fernando Simon Marmon and Nor Norberto Luis Har, Luis Har um, who had been kidnapped at, at a kibbutz on October 7th. Now, it's unusual. Their rescue is unusual. It came at a very opportune moment when... Biden even himself had even criticized the possibility of going into Rafah. Um, the British foreign minister had criticized it. Keir Starmer condemned it. You know, everyone's coming out against Rafah. And then they rescue these two guys. Osama Hamdan, who is Hamas's spokesman, who is based in Beirut, stated that they these two were not being held by Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the other major faction that participated in October 7th, they were held by like a private clan or like a family. And this is a reality that some people were captured on October 7th after Hamas, Hamas's Nukba commandos had left. And these are families who may have had their own family members in Israeli prisons who wanted to get some leverage themselves. There's video of people just like throwing people on motorbikes and taking them away without even having weapons. So what happened here? They, these guys were, were taken while they were asleep. They said they woke up and Israeli soldiers were there. I haven't seen any video of some dramatic operation. We keep hearing about how great the Israeli special forces were, but it doesn't look like they captured them from Hamas. And this is being put forward to convince the Israeli public and the West that it can all be done through military force. When we know that isn't true, the Israeli military has confirmed that it's killed several hostages that actually the Western media blamed on Hamas, like Yossi Sharabi. We called that out at the gray zone. Um, and they're just going to keep killing hostages until there are none left because they can't do this deal. It's up to Biden and Blinken to impose the deal and they won't do it because they're controlled. Yeah. I, I don't buy the official story at all. And why, why should we believe anything Israel says? They've been caught lying so many times. They have such obvious contempt for the lives of the captives they don't care about. So I think it's, yeah, you make a very good case for why that story is is bullshit. I got attacked in Haaretz over that story, even though I hadn't even commented on it till now. <laughs> I, I didn't, I don't know they're why. Like preemptively, they're preemptively attacking you? <laughs> yeah, and you know what they did? They did this thing that I keep seeing with, uh, you know, Israeli propagandists where they attack or correct 
uh, charge that hasn't been made or correct a lie that no one has told, where they basically some people said the hostages had already been rescued like in early December and were pointing, we're looking at some typo on the dates of a mm -hmm. um, Times of Israel article. But that wasn't the issue with this hostage rescue. Right. And so they 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 do a big fact check at Haaretz and attack me, even though I never said anything. <laughs> um, I guess it shows we're in their, you know, living in their heads. Uh, well, they're bitter. Living in less bank rent free. Yeah. And, and they're bitter. They're bitter that they had to subsequently uh, admit that you were right about whatever they called you a conspiracy theorist for uh, when it came to Israel killing its own people on October 7th. Uh, and exposing the lies of Zaka. So basically, they're just bitter that they've had to uh, subsequently report what they initially attacked you for reporting. Yeah. And I mean, since we're on the, well, nah, we'll skip it. Um, yeah, but they, they are, it's that they'll always run a, a piece attacking me or the gray zone. And then a few weeks later, they, they'll run a piece corroborating what we said. And all is forgotten. Um, what do we want to do next? Uh, I, I, I guess, um, celebrity sighting, celebrity sighting in Miami. I mean, we've been talking about this might be Zelensky's future home. This is Juan Guaido's current home and, uh, yeah, your Netanyahu has been spotted. This is what Netanyahu's son is doing while his generation of Zionist settler soldiers is committing genocide in Gaza and Dubai. I mean, and this is fueling anger against Netanyahu inside Israel. Yet the Biden administration is propping Netanyahu up. And, and what I keep saying about that is like Netanyahu aims to elect Donald Trump in November. It's another reason he wants to keep this war going. Hmm. The war is harming Biden. And that as long as it goes on, Biden's base is going to collapse. He's going to lose the youth vote. The numbers are showing more and more Democrats are furious. And it could be just enough to lose a few swing states. Obviously, Michigan is lost. That's a result that Netanyahu will be happy with because he and Trump share a donor in the Adelson family. Uh, and maybe, maybe, you know, but it would have been better if Trump had been president presiding over this genocide, because at least there would have been opposition from the Democrats in Congress. Exactly. Exactly. They've made that case like very clear that they're better off as an opposition party than in, in the white house. Absolutely. There's no way. Well, I shouldn't say, obviously people like Chuck Schumer would be completely on board with whatever Trump did, but um, yeah. there, there would have to be more Democrats coming out of, because, you know, this is a genocide and uh, the pressure on them from their base would be, I think, even stronger because it, Trump would be in the White House to sort of antagonize the base. And uh, they're absolutely making that case clear. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's looking, obviously the media isn't covering this, but there's been a permit, like a, a nightly daily protest against Tony Blinken at his home. This reminds me of Cindy Sheehan's encampment outside George W. Bush's Crawford, Texas ranch, where he spent the majority of his presidency during the Iraq War. Cindy Sheehan being the mother of a soldier who was killed 
in Iraq. And this is our This is Blinken going to work every day. There's Blinken's motorcade. He's getting, you know, simulated blood poured outside his house and on his motorcade every war day criminal! outside his mansion. Props to them. Props so, to them. so courageous. So people who can confront these war criminals directly, I think, have such. A, it's so courageous to do that. You know, um, it's so courageous. The same thing last week with the people who confronted Hillary Clinton and Linda Thomas Greenfield and that former Israeli intelligence officer who runs the Columbia Foreign Affairs School over their, you know, uh, fake conference to weaponize sexual violence to justify the genocide. I mean, such brave people. And you know, Blinken is shook by this. You can see it in his face. He just perpetually looks scared. Because he really fashioned himself as this like human rights champion. And I think he really thought people I, I really think he he believed that people supported him and thought he was like on the right side because he rallied everyone to support Ukraine. But now Democrats, uh, like the base, are the ones out there protesting the Biden administration and refusing to vote for him in places like Michigan, where there's a really big drive to vote uncommitted. And they're scared. They sent um Samantha Power. And John Finer, uh, a deputy national security advisor, go to Michigan recently. I can't remember if we talked about it last week or not. Yeah, but John Finer said we've made some missteps. We made some missteps. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. We we didn't communicate how much we really care about the lives of Palestinians. It was all framed as a PR issue that if only we did a better job of public messaging, everything would be fine. I mean, overlooking the fact that they're providing the weapons and the support to exterminate Palestinian lives. So whatever you say about how much you care about them publicly doesn't matter if you're materially providing all the support to exterminate the Palestinian lives you claim to care about. But it, 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 it exactly. And it's, it's just, it's taken away the veneer that the democratic party had. First of all, the democratic party prefers the population to be involved, maybe in a culture war the Republicans love the culture war too, but they don't want their own base to be politicized. That's what, Clintonism in the 1990s was about was they you know they depoliticized their base they kind of removed the left from the equation they sister soldiered the left and the black civil rights movement they brought them in by playing saxophone they were they're they're not accustomed to having these and, and then Obama sustained that uh, they weren't they're they aren't accustomed to having these kind of protests outside their homes to be dealing with this kind of rancor with their own base this is something they thought. They had gotten through after LBJ stepped down and the disaster of the 68 convention and then McGovern, the activist candidate losing so badly in 72. The generation that still runs the Democratic Party, which Tony Blinken really represents, they thought this was over. And they also thought that they would be more respected on the world stage. In <laughs> uh, you know, Bernie Sanders' brother 
no, am I correct? He's a he's a Green Party politician in the UK, or is that am I thinking of someone else? He does have a brother who lives in the UK. I know that. I don't know if he's a politician, but he definitely has a brother who lives in the UK. Yes. Bernie Sanders is always someone who's sort of, you know, received respect wherever he goes around the world. He's seen as the alternative to the imperialist Democrats. But he he actually went to Ireland recently, and he himself was met with the same kind of rancor because he's identified himself so closely with Biden, including Biden's foreign policy. Maybe we can translate this. So he's being challenged on Gaza. So if you can't hear that, he just said, I get a little bit queasy and I don't know any, and, and anyway, he, does, you go, he did his whole thing. What genocide? What like quotation marks genocide. So he's queasy about using the word genocide. And this is when an audience member intervenes. It is a genocide. What's your definition of genocide? Bernie, you have funded Zionism yourself. You have funded the Israeli settler state. Here you are pretending you aren't. It is disgusting. Liar, liar, genocide, denier. Liar, liar, genocide, denier. It's disgusting. It is reprehensible. You are a child killer. You are a genocide designer. The United States military industrial complex are the largest murderers in the world. It does not matter if it is a Democrat or a Republican. You have murdered people around the world. The Native Americans are still being genocided. I have never heard you once speak about genocide. So, you know, Bernie's the guy who, you know, uh, he's now finally trying to oppose further U.S. funding of Israel. Okay, but where was he in the first months of this? He was going around saying we can't have a ceasefire. He was calling for a temporary pause, basically adopting the Biden administration's position. Then he shifted by saying, okay, fine, no more money for Israel. But long after the damage was done in the and and the way you know with tens of thousands of people slaughtered with with, with u.s weapons he, so he, he deserves it was enough he say was it again like, he kind of said like we've it, it, we've it, it's enough is enough yeah too many have died it's too many yeah yeah so basically i had a meeting with mad dust we decided on a figure yeah Twenty thousand exactly. people killed yeah yeah, yeah. Ten thousand dead kids and that yeah. would be the point when we would say no enough but yeah. it's not a genocide yeah he, he dragged his feet so he deserves you know Whatever, it's obviously good that he's now opposing funding, but he deserves, that doesn't mean he's off the hook for his positions, and he deserves to be held to account, and uh, it's great to see that. I think he thinks that somehow, because he's now coming out against funding Israel, that that means he's um, above criticism, but I'm sorry. you know, it, it is a genocide, and he deserves to be called out for supporting it. Also, he's in Ireland. 
Like that guy can't be accused of getting Trump elected. They're Irish. <laughs> like, you can't expect to be going to Ireland. And it's it, 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 there's just different standards there. I, I you know I spent time in Northern Ireland on a speaking tour about Palestine. It's like I've never met so many white people who agreed with me about foreign policy. It was great. Um, I wish it was warmer there. I might have taken up residence. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, I mean, you, the Democrats are not seen as the more sane, rational foreign policy alternative, even by Western Europeans, as they once were all the way through Obama. Well, here's another reason why. This is the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul. Oh, my God. Hamas for what it is, and it is a terrorist organization that must be stopped. No one, no country should live with that threat, that specter over them. And for those who don't understand this dynamic here in our own state, in our own country, I'll give you an example. I'm from Buffalo. Anybody realize that? If Canada someday ever attacked Buffalo, I'm sorry, my friends, there would be no Canada the next day, right? Right? Yeah, uh, Bill's Mafia. Canada, but we did have the War of 1812, and they did burn Buffalo, so well, there might be a little conflict here. But think about that. That is a natural reaction. You have a right to defend yourself and to make sure it never happens again. And that is Israel's right. So outright endorsement of genocide. Um She's actually endorsing, though, the logic of October 7th, because if in her mind it's okay to commit genocide over a one-day attack, then certainly it's okay to commit a one-day attack after 75 years of ethnic cleansing, right? Um, I mean, it's just, you know, and she kind of walked back her statement, I think, but not really, of course. It was a typical Weasley apology, but um, she's not the first person to actually, you know, use this uh, Canada analog this is joe biden reportedly 40 years ago during the lebanon during the israeli assault on lebanon he said what did you do in lebanon you annihilated what you annihilated it was great if attacks were launched from canada into the u.s everyone here would have said attack all the cities of canada and we don't care if all the civilians get killed so kathy hochul is just following in genocide joe's footsteps i mean it's it, it, it's it's of, of course, it's clownish. I feel almost like I'm lowering myself by attempting to address the logic of anything any major New York City or state leader says, because for some reason, New York State is producing some of the biggest clowns. Eric Adams, Cuomo. Hakeem Hope, Jeffries. Hakeem. Well, I mean, there's just, it's just a clown fest. But the U.S. is... It, the U.S. is not occupying Canada. I mean, maybe it should be. Maybe we should take over Canada. Uh, maybe I agree with Tucker there. I don't know. Sorry, Aaron. But uh, <laughs> at least get rid of you know Trudeau and haul him off to the Hague. But uh, take his socks. No, but seriously, I mean, they, they, they use these talking points not only to defend genocide, but to remove the context for anti-colonial resistance. And they try to place the Palestinians as equals with Israel by saying, what if New Jersey, uh, you know, attacked New York? Like, what if they got John Bon Jovi to drive a Corvette and or like a Trans Am through New York just shooting everybody? 
Like, what would we do then? Well, we would, of course, blow up New Jersey and uh, assassinate Chris Christie. And like, you know, that's the but it equal it, it, it's a false equivalency. And that's the way our political class thinks about Israel, Palestine. They're just beyond idiotic. It's hard to reach them. And I think it might be a good transition point here to address Rashida Tlaib's new initiative on Syria, uh, which uh, evinces a complete lack of seriousness on ending U.S. empire in the region of the world from which her family hails. Do we want to go to that? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So, yeah, the U.S. is sanctioning Syria to death. It's driven something like over 80% of the population into extreme poverty, uh, food scarcity. The economy's wrecked. The situation for the leadership of Syria, well, they're going to find food, you know, that's not who this is targeting. U.S. Caesar sanctions aim to starve the population into submission while U.S. the U.S. military, which is coming under attack around Al-Tanaf and other areas in northeastern Syria, is stealing Syria's oil, shipping it out through Iraq, smuggling it out and selling it on the international market in order to starve Syria while occupying wheat fields to prevent Syria from being able to address the food crisis. They're doing it openly and explicitly. And here comes Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who justifiably cried for the genocide in Gaza, who is Palestinian. Over 600,000 Syrians have been killed, she said, which is a, a totally fake and manipulated number that I'll talk about. Yes, many Syrians have been killed, but she's manipulating the data in a idiotic way and a propagandistic way. I introduced the Justice for Syrians resolution to push for the UN to finally hold war criminal Assad accountable for his crimes against humanity at an ad hoc international court of law, which won't be an international court of law. It will be ad hoc, which means that it will be placed in a place like, put in a place like Germany uh, and overseen by Western intelligence because an international court of law would never go along with this. We demand justice for the Syrian people, and she's speaking on behalf of Syria. Madam's 600, 600,000 killed. It has been over a decade since the start of the Syrian civil war, and victims of numerous horrific crimes committed during the conflict are still waiting for justice. In recent months, regional powers and dictators have sought to sweep the, the war criminal, the Syrian dictator, Bashar al-Assad, al hideous, I mean, horrific crimes under the rug and welcome him back into the international arena. Shame. Oh no, Syria will become part of the Arab League. Oh, that would be horrible. Let's continue sanctioning them. Assad's regime committed some of the worst atrocities of the 21st century, including using chemical weapons, literally on his own people, his own people and widespread use of torture, horrific torture on his own people. I introduced the Justice for Syrians resolution and urge my colleagues to bring it to the floor for a vote. The bill directs the US through the United Nations to finally hold the war criminal Assad accountable for crimes against humanity for an ad hoc international court of law. This is critical. 
Please join me in demanding justice for our Syrian people and our families that are directly impacted that live here in the United States and push and hold war criminals like Assad accountable for their crimes against humanity. So, I mean, uh, I want to hear your reaction, but my initial takeaway is that speech was just handed to her. She read it without emotion. She's doing it to uh, to restore some of her cre credibility inside the Beltway. She, I mean, my, you know, when I, when I was in fourth grade, I could read a speech better than that. She'd never seen it before, it looked like. Uh, and any emo the emotion she tried to feign when referencing chemical attacks was not even there. So, um, it's just amazing. the The Syria dirty war is to me the most censored U.S. war I've ever seen. You just cannot acknowledge the basic facts that uh, the U this is the most expensive covert war in the CIA's history. Uh, One dollar out of every fifteen dollars in the CIA's budget went to funneling weapons to sectarian death squads in Syria. And that led to a massive war where, yes, Syria and its allies responded. And as we've seen by visiting there, it left you know, parts of the country in ruins. But the part that gets omitted in, by Rashida Tlaib and the people who pair this line is, the, is her own government's role. So she talks about justice for Syrians. What, what about justice for Syrians who are victimized by death squads funded by our government? And that are still victimized by the Israeli government when it bombs Syria regularly in joint strikes with the U.S., which is for a Palestinian. I know that the issue of Syria really divided people on the left and inside the Palestinian community. There are plenty of grievances people have with the government there, and there's no doubt people have suffered under it. But how can you go and join forces with Israel uh, to terrorize the country, which is what Rashida Tlaib is doing? The same people are committing. She's siding with the people who are genociding her people. Um, and she, in the process, she repeats the typical Iraq WMD level lies uh, that Syria used chemical weapons, which are just it's a classic it's a classic case of atrocity propaganda to justify U.S. backed atrocities. Same as what happened in Iraq. All the evidence that we have of these allegations of chemical weapons by Syria shows that these were either carried out in attacks by insurgents or in the case of Duma in 2018, that that was. Uh, staged that there actually wasn't a chemical attack there and there's so much evidence to support this it's completely whitewashed and ignored by the u.s media but it's all there we've documented it nobody refutes us because they can't it's all based there in leaks especially from the opcw the top chemical watchdog which investigated all this so it, it's amazing to me that somebody who is palestinian and um she seems genuinely committed to her people's cause can side with the very same neocons uh who are trying to exterminate her people. It, it just doesn't make any sense. And by the way, isn't there an Israeli... Max, I believe I read this in something you wrote a while ago. Isn't Israel deeply actually implicated in the in this whole chemical weapons scam to begin with? Wasn't this kind of their idea to uh, basically accuse Assad of chemical attacks and that could be a way to justify intervention? Do I, I, have I, wrote, about I wrote about it back in like 2011 or 2012, the yeah. red line, their idea was is, Israeli intelligence was lobbying for a red line for a long time before yeah. it even entered the kind of U.S. zeitgeist. And they were putting forward, you know, the, if you remember early on in October, these leaked phone conversations that would supposedly feature two Hamas operatives saying, uh, yeah, Yanni, there are uh, rockets under the hospital. Uh, 
you know, and they're speaking in a Le Lebanese accent. It's totally fake. They had they 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 dropped some recording with uh, like Mahar Assad, Bashar's brother, uh, supposedly instructing a tank division under his command to fire the chemical weapons. That was Israeli intelligence, and it was just as bogus. So yes, uh, and then you know you have the Caesar deception. The Caesar sanctions are based on a gigantic deception. A guy in a blue North Face parka where his face was covered was brought to Washington. They said he was a military photographer for the Syrian quote unquote regime and that he had taken all brought smuggled all these photos out showing all of these dead, you know, people brutally tortured by Assad's thugs. Um, in real, I mean, in reality, he was smuggled out through a CIA and Qatari intelligence operation. Qatar paid for all of the photographs to be uh, supposedly vetted and transferred, and uh, the photos didn't actually show what they claimed. Half of the photos, according to even Human Rights Watch, showed people who had been killed, often in car accidents or by the. Western and Gulf funded death squads. Yeah. Uh, they also showed many people killed in combat. And these photos were all put up around Congress. And the guy was brought in this blue jumpsuit where you couldn't see his face to testify. His translator was Muaz Mustafa, who is a the uh, US intelligence asset, the Syrian Western intelligence asset, who brought John McCain on his notorious illegal trip to Syria. And uh, then they passed this bill sanctioning Syria, which they've just extended to something like 2035, thanks to Rashida Tlaib, which will undoubtedly kill and starve hundreds of thousands of Syrians and prevent rebuilding, including in areas where people don't even support the government, but are under the Syrian government, the internationally recognized Syrian government's control. So Rashida Tlaib, while she's failed to actually save any Palestinians, despite her best efforts, and we can give her credit for those efforts, has actually successfully managed to sign away the lives of untold numbers of Syrians and Palestinians who are living in Syria, uh, which has treated Palestinian refugees better than, for example, the government, the official government of Lebanon. So this, it's just disgusting hypocrisy. This is Beltway uh, Palestine advocacy at its worst. And she deserves to be challenged on it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I would hope to do so. Yeah. And just to be clear, so this this act she's introducing here is called the Justice for Syrians Act. But she talks about creating some ad hoc tribunal. There was another vote this week for the so-called Assad regime anti-normalization act. And that's the one that, you know, is really most aggressive in cementing the Caesar sanctions and explicitly targeting reconstruction. It's right there in the text saying exactly. that, you know, that's disgusting. Yeah, and uh, Rashid Tlaib voted for the Assad regime anti-normalization act, which really means the normalization of sadism against Syrian civilians. That's what that really means. So she, but other members of the squad didn't. She some, you know, she voted for it. So she can't even say that you know she's really just trying to pursue, uh, you know, ad hoc justice here. She's also explicitly voting for these sadistic sanctions. And by the way, what she also did, speaking of sort of placating neocon uh, agendas she got up on the floor i believe this week as well and basically bought into the sexual violence propaganda about hamas saying that she, she was critical of a measure condemning hamas for alleged sexual violence but on the grounds that it didn't also condemn israel's uh, 
sexual violence against Palestinians. But she bought, she basically accepted the premise that in the first place that Hamas is guilty of sexual violence when, as we've shown, all the claims that have been adduced so far to support that are unsupported and are contradicted by the available facts. And she could have just, if she didn't want to challenge it because it's too sensitive, fair enough. But instead, she actually accepted the premise that the allegation is true even when it's not. So that was the another example. With, of, the same thing happened with Ilhan Omar. She, you know, she opposed a resolution recognizing Israel as an exclusively Jewish state. Uh, and then uh, she was lobbied by the Israel lobby, by one of its top tools in Congress, Josh Gottheimer, Democrat from New Jersey. He took personal credit for this and she removed her opposition. So, I mean, all of even the like most supposedly hardcore members of the squad can be gotten at and they've been gotten at. So it's just a black pill moment for the whole Democratic Party right now. Uh, and, you know, and I feel honestly, I, I feel bad criticizing her because she is under constant attack by the worst people in the world. And I know it's hard to be a Palestinian American member of the House. Like she's under a lot of different, you know, I, I have genuine empathy for her and appreciation of her tough position. But I'm sorry, certain things are just like, I, like we can't see an action like this when you're voting for sadistic sanctions on suffering people and we can't let that slide that has to be called out especially by the way if it's serving the, the very same uh neocons and israeli government that are that are genociding her people i mean that just has to be opposed i'm pretty sure she yeah well, i'm pretty sure she's like support she, she all of these figures none of them opposed U ukraine aid they made it a partisan issue just like Get seeded it to the Republicans. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know what what they want to do in Congress, but uh, it it's it's depressing. Um, I got a wrap. We'll be back next week. Like this stream, subscribe, support us. You know, I mean, just being here is is all the support that we need. But feel free to do more. Um, but yeah, really important that you like it and subscribe because we're constantly under suppression by YouTube and it's Google masters. Uh, Google stands with Ukraine and Israel is a military contractor, owns YouTube, and we're constantly demonetized. So um, anyway, thank you all for being here. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Thanks, Max. You want to add? Good to see everybody. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.